The first scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 12. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. The second scripture reading is from James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we, put, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider that a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. In the final scripture reading, selections from the book of Proverbs. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. An evil man is trapped by his sinful talk, but a righteous man escapes trouble. We're in the third week now of this four-week sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been staying with somewhat similar themes every week. So the, the Sermon on the Mount is actually uh, covers a lot of ground and has a number of diverse topics within it. You would know that from our series because we're just looking at uh, a narrow group of subjects which are all somewhat interrelated. The first week of the series, we looked at the subject of judging, the prohibition, do not judge. Last week, we looked at the flip side of that, which was the necessity of confrontation, confronting others directly. And this week, we're looking at a third topic, which touches on both of the first two indirectly, which is our words, specifically the power and the potency of our words and our speech. And in looking at this, we're kind of running up against a cultural notion, which is that our words aren't really that big of a deal. So you have these 
these idioms or these sayings, you know, um, a picture is worth a thousand words, or actions speak louder than words, so words are less valuable than pictures, they're less uh, voluminous, I guess, than, than actions. Um, and then there's uh, just talk, merely talk, a bunch of hot air. There's, there's sense in the culture that words really aren't that big a deal. That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says, as you heard the proverb read just a second ago, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And that's what Jesus says almost exactly in the, the section of the Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at this morning. He says, your tongue, your words have the power to kill and they have the power to send you to hell. By your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. The power of death and life in the tongue, a very big deal. And then James calls it a rudder. He says, your words more than anything else determine the direction of your life. So that's what the Bible says about our words, extremely powerful and potent. And that's what I want us to spend our time looking at this morning. We're going to do it in three sections. First, we're going to look at the negative potential of our words, which is really frightening. Then we're going to look second at the positive potential of our words, which is breathtaking. And then finally, we'll look at getting from the negative to the positive. So first, the negative Second, the positive, and then thirdly, getting from the negative to the positive. So first, the negative potential of our words. And in this first section, we're going to break it down into two subsections. We're going to talk about the negative potential of our words with respect to the hearers, the listeners, those we're speaking to, but also the negative potential of our words for ourselves, for the speakers. So let's take the the listeners, this person we're speaking to first. Tremendous power negatively for those we speak to. And the way Jesus puts it is basically the gist of this section of the Sermon on the Mount is essentially your words can kill. And if you shoot someone with your words, it's no different than shooting them with a gun. And if you slash someone with your words, it's no different than slashing them with a knife. Your words are extremely potent and murder verbally is every bit as bad as as murder physically. And if you remember, in this whole segment of the Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing, it's essentially a commentary on the Ten Commandments. And he's especially concerned with this person who thinks they've kept the Ten Commandments. It's like, I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered. And Jesus is saying, well, not so fast. Maybe you've never technically murdered with your hands, but you've murdered with your words all the time. So what's he talking about? What is this murdering with words or, or killing with words? I think he could be thinking of a couple of different things. Uh, So the first thing he could be thinking of is just you can literally physically murder somebody with your words. You know, if you um, this doesn't happen very much for most of you, but if you order somebody to assassinate someone, you know, you give it a, a verbal order. It's no different than killing them. So obviously that's one very narrow case. But broadening it from that, if you use words that are hateful that eventually lead to murder, how is that different from the murder itself? So to take an example like the Holocaust, where there are always millions of anti-Semitic words that are written and spoken in the generations leading up to the atrocity. What are those words? Those words are murder. They're genocide. They're every bit as much murder and genocide as the actions committed by those who are actually operating the gas chambers. And another example would be your words, you know, words can obviously cause suicide. So every couple of years, there's this tragic story of some teenager that was bullied and ends up committing suicide, and you get into it, and it's a matter of words. These words that were spoken by 
their classmates every day mercilessly, just stabbing repeatedly with these slurs and these labels. And that stabbing with those words is no different than stabbing with a knife. Those kids that did that have blood on their hands. So you can, you can murder physically with your words. But there's something else that I think Jesus may have in mind here too, which is that you can murder psychologically, relationally, socially with your words. So even if it doesn't cause physical death, you can still take someone's soul, a part of their soul away from you. You can kill a part of their soul. And isn't that just as bad, Jesus is saying. And to take an example here, if you call a child stupid, for instance, you kill a part of that child. If you say it repeatedly, you're you're putting poison into the ground that for the rest of their life is going to be polluting everything in their life. And every person in here this morning has some word that they received at some point in their life that still to this day is polluting them and poisoning them and coloring the way they see themselves and the way they see other people. These words that have killed a part of you or wounded a part of you psychologically or spiritually that nobody intended to necessarily, but it's, it's violent. It's a violent act, that poison. This power, this negative potential our words have to really wound others in serious ways. And Jesus is saying, it's not that different. If you think you haven't committed murder, but you've done this, it's not that different. So maybe you haven't said something that's actually caused someone to die. But we've all said things that have wounded a person in a deep way. And Proverbs says it's like a sword. You know, it cuts all the way to the core. So there's that phrase, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And it should be, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can truly hurt me. Because these are just serpent's wounds if it's sticks and stones, but words can go all the way to the core. Once that sword is inserted, there's really nothing you can do about it. You can't, once the word has been said, you can't unsay it. You can't unutter it. And you can, you can pull the sword out and say, whoops, I, I didn't mean to say that. But pulling the sword out doesn't change the fact that there's still a gaping, bleeding hole there. And if the person survives, there will always be a scar. It's the negative potential of our words for those we're speaking to. But we also want to look at the negative potential of our words upon ourselves. And this is a surprising theme of scripture is that our words not only have tremendous negative potential in the lives of those we're speaking to, but they also have tremendous negative potential in the, in the lives of the sender of the word, not just the receiver, but the sender. And this is actually Jesus's main concern in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. He's only talking about the damage our words can do to other people indirectly. What he's really talking about directly is be careful the way you talk because your words, without you meaning to, can just whisk you right along down this path to hell. And the the proverb you heard read says an evil man is trapped by his words. You're trapped by your own words. Has anybody ever had that happen? Jesus says not only can you trap yourself with your words, but you can damn yourself with your words. Putting that differently, your words have this power to take you somewhere where you don't want to go. You didn't mean to end up here. You were just talking, and then all of a sudden now you're somewhere where you never intended to be. Power to take you where you don't want to go. And if you look at the the things that James was saying about the fire, they have the power to destroy what you have, to destroy something beautiful that you have. So James uses this image of the tongue as a fire, and there's this, this forest, and the whole forest goes up in flames. And he's saying it's like that in our lives with our words. It can destroy the most beautiful thing that we have. So other than a 
relationship with God. The only thing that you really need in life is relationships with other people. That's the only thing you have to have to be fulfilled as a human being. And this, in that sense, it's the most com- valuable commodity on earth. And that most valuable commodity is the thing that we most often set a flame to, send up in flames with our words. It's so easy to torch a relationship verbally. And you had it, you had this beautiful thing, but then all of a sudden now you don't because of something you said. The marriage or the friendship or the parent-child relationship or the relationship with a sibling is gone. It's the most valuable thing you had, and now it's gone because of something you said. This power to consume and destroy the beauty in our lives because of what we say. Tremendous negative potential, not only with respect to the hearers, to wound them and kill them, but also with respect to ourselves, to take the good things we have away from us and to take us somewhere we don't want to go. And you put all that together and you say, well, maybe I should just stop talking altogether, you know, I mean, if it's that bad, I mean, maybe you should just avoid words like the plague, which actually is, you know, it sounds kind of absurd, but that's exactly what the Trappist monks do for for this reason, among others. They just completely silent. They only speak when absolutely necessary because look at all the harm that can come from speaking. Now, that's the wrong approach. I mean, I, I, I guess I shouldn't say that so flippantly, you know, I mean, there are, there are probably Trappist monks that have thought about this more than I have, and you know, if one was here, could probably beat me in an argument on this subject, except that he couldn't talk, so I guess I would still win. Um, what I meant to say was, this is probably the wrong approach. This seems to me to be the wrong approach. And the reason being, the Bible doesn't just talk about the negative potential of our words, but also talks about this extremely positive potential that our words have as well. They not only can bring death, but they can also bring life. So let's turn to that now and look at that in section two of the sermon. Section two, the positive potential of our words. And we'll have the same two exact subsections here that we had in the first section. So we'll look at these, this positive potential with respect to ourselves and with respect to those we're speaking to, but let's flip it around this time. So, so first we'll look at the positive potential of our words with respect to ourselves. And in this whole section, we're essentially just going to be looking at the mirror image of everything we looked at in the last section. So for instance, we said in the last section that our words have this power to take us where we don't want to go against our will. And the flip side of that is that our words have the power to take us where we most want to go. This is the, the point of James's image about the, the bit or the rudder. You know, you've got this 2,000-pound stallion and a 90-pound jockey on his back, and the jockey gets to call the shots. How does that work? Because there's a bit. You've got this huge ocean liner and this small steering wheel, and the steering wheel directs the whole ship. How does that work? Because of the rudder. And James is saying, your, your tongue is like that. Your words are like that. They have this immense power to take you where you want to go if you know where that is and if you know how to use your words. So from the the 1930s to the 1980s, there was this movement that was extremely popular in the U.S. that was known as positive thinking. And the heyday, of course, is uh, the 1950s. Norman Vincent Peale, who was pastor at Marble Collegiate Church, which was and still is, in fact, up at 29th and 5th. If you walk up there, you can still see Norman Vincent Peale's statue out front of the building. So he's a pastor up there, and he writes this book in 1952, The Power of Positive Thinking which to this day is one of the best-selling nonfiction books ever written. And the guy that took the baton from Norman Vincent P. 
appeal was this guy, Zig Ziglar, who for you know, several decades crisscrossed the country giving these multi-day seminars, which only had one point, which was you know, the only, his only recommendation in you know, three days of material was whatever you want to do, just speak it. Just whatever you want to happen in your life, just say it. Say it repeatedly, and you can get there. So if you want to become a, a kinder person, just say every day, I will become a kinder person. If you want a promotion, you just say or you just write down, every day I will get a promotion. And this sort of thing is really, you know, looked down upon today. is very silly. It's, you know, it's fallen completely out of fashion, especially in a cynical place like New York, the only problem is it's extremely effective. It works really, really well. So just to take one example out of thousands, uh, Scott Adams, the guy that does the Dilbert comic strip, he was a middle manager at Pacific Bell Telephones, really unsatisfied with his career, and he thought about how when he was younger he had wanted to be uh, a, a cartoonist, a syndicated cartoonist. So he starts writing down on a piece of paper every day, 15 times a day, I will become a syndicated cartoonist. No prospects whatsoever. And if you hear him tell the story, he says it is remarkable over this period of months how stuff just starts happening that makes it more and more likely. And eventually, of course, he does become a syndicated cartoonist. And now he's made a lot of money and is in you know, 65 countries and 25 languages, and etc. Your words have the power to direct your life. That's what James is saying. Tremendous power to direct, direct and even to create. If you want to think about this from a theological standpoint, you know, we're made in the image of God. And what you see in human beings is that your words not only have the power to describe reality, they have the power to create reality. In Genesis 1, God doesn't create with his hands, he creates with his words. God said, let there be life. And human beings, to a much lesser extent, to an extremely limited extent, but still a dim reflection of God's creative power, can actually create reality with their words. Words can take you where you want to go. And then we, we'd also looked at the negative potential with our words with respect to our relationships. So the positive flip side of that is your words, more than anything else in your life, can create intimacy and closeness and depth of relationships. They can give you the thing you most want and most need. You can't be understood unless you can speak, unless you have words. And that's what everybody most wants, is to be understood by other people. That's why it's so maddening when you want to say something and you can't. You can't find the words because you can't be understood by the other person. It's been remarkable to me to watch the process of our three daughters gaining proficiency with speech. And the the deep frustration that comes when they can't find the word that they want, and then this deep satisfaction that comes when they can. So our youngest, Kate, is, you know, she's a year old. She can't talk at all. She just squawks and, and squeals and screeches, and she has a whole, uh, she has all these different types of squeals that all mean different things. You know, like a dolphin, she's got all these different meanings within the squeal. But she really can't be known. You know, I really don't know her very well because she can't talk. When I look back at Reese, when she was this age, I, I realized I didn't even know her. Now that she's five and she has this huge vocabulary, I know her. I know this is one beautiful, thoughtful, funny, very strange kid. I mean, I had no idea the weird things that were going on up in her brain before she could talk. And now I know. Our words give us the ability to be known. It's life's greatest joy and pleasure. You know, there's this stereotype of the, the silent male, this, this male type 
kind of doesn't talk a lot about his feelings. And the thinking goes that he, he just doesn't have the need for a lot of words. And so, well, you know, it's fine for him. It's kind of too bad for his wife if he's married because she would like to know more about what he's thinking and what he's feeling. And, you know, he just doesn't have the need for that. And what that stereotype misses is that as hard as that may be for the wife to not know what her husband is thinking or feeling, it's far more painful for the man himself to not be able to be understood because he doesn't have the words. His desire to be known and understood is far deeper even than her desire to know and understand him. And it's only words that make that possible. So they can take you where you most want to go, and they can give you the greatest thing there is in life, which is intimacy. That's the positive potential with respect to ourselves. Turning now to the positive potential with respect to other people. And again, continuing with this, this method of just flipping what we were talking about in the last section. We were saying before that our words can wound and kill negatively, positively. The flip side of that is our words can heal and our words can give life. So look at these Proverbs that we read earlier. We'll put these up on the screen. The tongue has the power of life and death. Those who love it will eat its fruit. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. So crushing and wounding and piercing or bringing healing and giving food. This image of, of our words as fruit or our words as food, as nourishment, drives home the point that we all need words from the outside to survive, basically, to, to thrive as a human being. You need these words from the outside to tell you who you are and to, to give you a sense of worth and value. And again, we're, we're coming up against a cultural notion, which is this idea that, well, it doesn't matter what anybody else says about you. All that matters is what you think about yourself and what you say about yourself, which, you know, good luck with that. I mean, if you, if you are trying to be an artist, you've been making art for five years, and every single person that you've shown your art to for five years, 100% have said, this is worthless. Um, you're going to give up. And, you know, I know a lot of the greatest artists in history have had a lot of people not get their work, you know, for, during their lifetime. But a few people always did. There were always some people that believed in them and understood and said, this is really worth something. And if nobody says you're an artist, then you're not an artist. It doesn't matter what you say about yourself. We have to have these words from the outside to validate us. They're food that we feed upon, which means that you have tremendous power over the people in your life to, to give or withhold this food. You can feed them, you can nourish them, build them up, encourage them, tell them who they are and who they can be, or you can starve them with a silent treatment, and then they suffer in atrophy. But the positive potential is incredible to, to give these people this food that they most need. I want to share a story along these lines from this author, John Trent. This is a little bit uh, chicken soup for the soulish, so I, I apologize for that, um, but it's, it's very fitting, so I decided to use it anyway. So he says, James had two daughters, one was six, and the other had just celebrated her fourth birthday. Ever since James's elder daughter had turned four, he had taken her out for a short daddy-daughter date once a week. Now it was the youngest daughter's turn for her first date with her father. They went to a local fast food restaurant where his daughter ordered pancakes. When the food came, the father took her hand in his and prayed for the food. He then told her, I want you to know how much I love you and how special you are to mom and me. We couldn't be prouder of the wonderful girl you're growing up to be. 
In fact, if we lined up every girl your age in the whole city and we could only pick one, guess who we'd choose every time? You. Finished, James released his daughter's hand and picked up his fork, but never got the fork to his mouth. His daughter reached out her little hand and laid it on top of his. In a soft voice, she pleaded, Longer, Daddy, longer. James put down his fork and proceeded to list more reasons and ways they loved her and then reached again. (laughs) I love that I tried to play it off like, oh, it's so cheesy. And And now you know the real reason I didn't want to use it. Um, James put down his fork and proceeded to list more reasons and ways they loved her and then reached again for his fork a second time and a third and a fourth. Hear the appeal, longer, daddy, longer. The father finally did get to eat his breakfast, but that morning his daughter was hungrier for his words of praise than the piping hot pancakes. Did all that affirmation really make a difference? A few weeks later, the same daughter ran up to her mother, jumped in her arms, and spontaneously said, Mommy, I'm a really special daughter. Daddy told me so. Anyway, yeah, super dumb story, Um, but... (laughs) Our words can feed. Our words can feed the people in our lives in this incredibly powerful way. It's the positive potential of our words, not only with respect to ourselves, but with respect to other people. So now it's time to move to the third section of the sermon, which is moving from the negative to the positive. Because we, we look at these two sides, and the truth is, uh, the, the scale way too often tips toward the negative. You know, we'd like to be using our words to feed and to heal and to take us where we want to go, but far too often we're using our words to wound, and our words end up taking us places we don't want to go. And the question is, how do you change? How do you use your words in a more positive way? And the answer to that is not as simple as you might like. Because what you think is, well, I'll just resolve to change. I'll just start using different words. You know, I've heard this sermon. I'm inspired by the positive potential of words, and I'm scared by the negative potential of words. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stop saying stupid things, and I'm gonna start saying better things. It doesn't really work. I want to read you Psalm 39. We'll put this up on the screen. I love this psalm. This is David, and he says, "I said I will wash my ways and keep my tongue from sin." I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So I remained utterly silent, not even saying anything good. But my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. While I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. You know, I, I love this. He says, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything stupid like I did last time when I was with this group of people. But then he just sits there and he gets hotter and hotter and hotter and finally he erupts. And it's interesting that he uses the same image uh, that James uses, which is the, the words as a fire. And the thing about a fire is once it starts to get out of control, no amount of resolve is going to be able to do anything to stop it. Or the other image James uses is this venomous snake that can't be tamed. Remember he said, we've tamed all sorts of other animals. We can't tame the tongue. It's a venomous snake. You know, there's that, that phrase, just bite your tongue. And James is saying, well, you can try to bite your tongue, but your tongue is going to bite back. Your tongue is outside of your control so much of the time. Why is that? Why are our words outside of our control? Jesus has an answer for that in Matthew 12. We, we read this passage earlier, but we haven't had a chance to look at it yet this morning, so you can look up on the screen as I read this. Jesus says, Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. 
or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Extremely disheartening statement. If it's true, it does explain this puzzle of why our words feel out of our control. Because what Jesus is saying is, your words aren't really a conscious choice. They just flow naturally, inevitably, as a matter of course, out of whatever's inside of you. It's organic. And so, you know, if you've got this tree with rotten roots, you can't just go and try to tie good pieces of fruit on the branches. And he's saying the same thing. You can't just try to have good words all of a sudden. Your words come from inside you. So it's nice that it explains this puzzle of why they're out of our control, but it's not so nice, and then it means the problem is a lot deeper than we originally thought. If you have a mouth problem, you have a heart problem. If you have these angry words, then you have this really wounded, insecure heart. If you have this overactive tongue, then you've got this unsettled heart, and so on. It's a lot deeper than we thought, and to solve the problem is going to take a lot more than we thought. Now, the question is now shifted. It's not, what do we have to do to have different words? It's, why do I have such a messed up heart to begin with? Why are these bad words flowing out of this bad place? And the answer to that still goes back to words, going back to what we were talking about earlier in the sermon. We all need words. We all feed upon words. We all have to have words from the outside to have a healthy heart. And the reason our hearts are so messed up is because we never got those words to begin with. And I'm not just talking about our parents, by the way. I mean, that's a lot of it. You know, not receiving these true, affirming, life-giving words to the extent you needed from your parents. But it's, it's also, it goes a lot deeper than that and goes a lot further back than that. So if you go all the way back to Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, how did the serpent bring about the fall of man? Through words, through lying, poisonous words. And we've received all of these words all the way back from Genesis 3, untrue words that we should have never heard, all these things we've heard that we should have never heard and haven't heard the things we needed to hear. So you can't give the words you need to give because you haven't received the words that you've needed to receive. And it's just a cycle that goes on and on and on. You don't get the words you need, so you can't give the words you need, and it goes on the next generation and the next and the next after that. This cycle of negative, destructive words. And I, I think you probably see where I'm going with this. The only way to break that cycle is for a word to break in from the outside, a word that is so true and so powerful that it can go all the way to the bottom of your heart like all these other untrue words have and reset things, essentially, and you can finally speak these constructive, positive words. And that word, that word breaking in and invading from the outside is Jesus. I don't just mean Jesus' words. I mean, Jesus' words themselves are obviously powerful. You know, there's that uh, verse in John 7 that in the King James, never spake man like this man. That's what they said about Jesus' words. They never heard anybody talk like Jesus. And if you go and read the Gospels, you'll say the same thing. Never an untrue word, never an unkind word, never a word that was destructive. Nobody ever spoke like Jesus. But when I say that Jesus is the word that breaks in from the outside to heal, I mean a lot more than just his words. I mean Jesus himself. In John 1, it says that Jesus is the word, the word of God. In Hebrews 1, it says he's the final word of God. God has spoken to us many times in many places, but he's spoken to us finally through his son. So if it's Christian trivia night, you know, and the question is, what's the word of God? And you say, the Bible. 
That's an okay answer. It's not necessarily wrong, but it's not nearly as good as this better answer, which is Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God. Revelation says he's the Alpha and the Omega. What does that mean? It means he's the whole alphabet. He's the whole dictionary. He's the beginning and the end of what God wants to say to us. And what God says to us through Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection, is that you are infinitely valuable. You do matter to me. You are worth my time and attention. You are loved. That's the word, the word that Jesus brings. And if you hear that to the extent that it resonates in your soul, then you don't need to lie anymore. You don't need to slash people with your words anymore because you've received the word you needed to hear. And so you can offer these words of healing, these words that can protect, these words that can overcome, these words that can resurrect because you received the word you needed from the outside. Let's pray. God, when we look at our words, we're frightened by the negative potential they have to take us somewhere we don't want to go. And it saddens us to look at the way that they can hurt those we love most and destroy the things we value most. And we see this other potential they have to take us to good places and to heal and affirm and build up, but we don't know how to get there. So I pray, God, that you would heal our hearts with your word. I pray that your words of love and affirmation and acceptance spoken to us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus would heal us. That if we haven't understood it before, we would understand it now. That if we haven't accepted it before, we would accept it now. That to the degree that we're still resistant to it, our defenses would fall. We pray these things in his name. Amen.